Hey, greetings, everyone. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West here, and welcome to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. So much of the political commentary out there is stale, boring, and unoriginal, and we try not to be stale, boring, and unoriginal here. That inspired Aaron McIntyre to turn off the predictable and superficial talking points and create a show to raise the collective IQ. The Aaron McIntyre Show offers thought-provoking and mold-breaking insights you won't find anywhere else. Aaron draws from the best political thinkers throughout history, to make sense of our current political climate in a way that is easy to digest. Join Aaron and his guests on a journey to dig below the surface to think more deeply about the politics of the day. And therefore, we are joined by Aaron McIntyre, who is down in the vicinity of Fort Myers, Florida, a place that I know very well. Aaron, thank you, and welcome to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You know, one of the things that Andrew Breitbart said was that politics flows downstream from the culture. Why do you think that we have not been successful in engaging this cultural battle that has gone off the rails from the progressive socialist left? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. I think one of the reasons is that there's an additional layer that to what Breitbart was talking about, because culture is downstream in many ways from power. And so it's been, I think, difficult for many conservatives to understand that our laws, our institutions, especially things like education and media, they shape our culture. And so it's not enough to simply make an argument about winning some specific election or making sure that we get a specific law passed. Those things are important. But the culture is impacted by a totality of different forces that kind of shape the consensus inside our nation. And so it's difficult for many to kind of think outside the box, but we have to look at all of these things. It's a holistic approach. It's not just one specific thing. You know, I agree with you wholeheartedly because it's the institutions out there that drive the culture and then, of course, drive the politics. And one of the things I've always said is that the left does not believe in the three branches of government, the legislative branch, executive branch, judicial branch. They believe in the three branches of rule, which comes back to what you're talking about, power. And for me, it seems that the media, academia and the courts end up being their three branches of rule. How have you seen these three branches from the leftist perspective, you know, alter this sense of power, which alters the sense of uh, culture, which then has that effect on the political standing of our country? Well, something the left really understands is that if popular sovereignty is supposed to be the driving mechanism of your government, then the key is to make sure to manufacture what the people believe. 
if the key is the voting, if it's that which is supposed to inform the actions of our branches of government, then the best thing to do is to control things like the media, which can shape public opinion and drive those votes, drive that cultural narrative to the place that they want to go. And so I think what they've been able to do is in many ways collapse the branches of government into kind of one singular thing, which is control of public opinion. And that's why they understand that, again, things like universities, education, media, this is what's most important because that's what sets the frame. It's what creates the narrative framework in which we then have our political discussions. And if you already own the terminology, if you already own the frame, then the political discussion afterwards is just a post-thought, right? It doesn't really matter because you've already defined the language people are using and the way in which they can think about issues. You know, you bring up a great point. It's all about their manipulation of language, going back to the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, or you look at now they're talking about gender-affirming health care. And if you don't support gender-affirming health care, you're not supporting the health care of their kid, when really you're talking about mutilating the bodies of, of young kids who, beneath the age, uh, less than the age of 18, they can't even go out and get a tattoo. So how have they been able to, you know, so effectively manipulate language and really not be challenged in, in any way, shape, form or fashion? Well, one of the things they get to do is set the rules of censorship, right? One of mm -hmm. the reasons that conservatives are forced to adopt the new speak of the left is literally that platforms will ban them if they don't. Facebook, YouTube. I mean, you're someone who I'm sure is used to talking around these different corners, right? We mm -hmm. all have gotten used to this at this point, because if you don't, it's very difficult in, to stay platformed and to get your message out to other people, which is why I think independent platforms are so important because they allow you to break through some of this. But unfortunately, we are still bound by much of this manipulation. Everyone is kind of beholden to these algorithm, algorithms and censorship. And if you don't play the game, then you won't be able to have an audience who will be able to reach. You won't even, as just a normal person, be able to talk to your grandma on social media anymore because you could be banned off it for using the wrong phrases. So there's a lot of ways that they set that tone, whether it be the media, academia, you know, you could get uh, tossed out of school or you could fail a class because you use the wrong kind of phrasing in any kind of academic setting. But the key is that they're always able to control this language and force people inside its frame. And even if you disagree with it, disagree with it, the fact that you have to use it shapes you. You know, it's interesting, you know, I get a chance to go on a lot of college and university campuses for the Young Americas Foundation. And it's always so funny and real hilarious that these young people come up and, and talk about, you know, you're supporting fascism. And, and, I, and I say, now let's think about this. What is fascism really about? You, you all are yelling and screaming. You don't want me to be able to speak. You're trying to take away my First Amendment right of freedom of speech, freedom of expression. Now, I don't care if you don't like what I'm saying, but you don't want to have the open debate. That's the essence of fascism. So when we have an organization called Antifa, which means anti-fascist, but yet they're going out there and beating up and destroying property because of people that they don't agree with, why is it that we haven't been effective in flipping that argument against them? 
Well, I think because many people treat fascism as something that it isn't. Fascism is a specific historical phenomenon. It happened in a particular place. It's actually a form of government. It's a form of social engineering. Mm -hmm. And people just use this word to mean evil. That's all they really mean by it. But things like communism were just as evil. They had just as much restriction, just as much terrible death, or actually far more terrible death if you look at all the different countries involved with communism over time. Fascism is bad, but it's just one of many failed government uh, experiments throughout history. But for some reason, it's been allowed to be this specter that haunts kind of America and the way that Americans engage in politics is just very foolish. Uh, Any conservative confronted with this should just immediately disregard this, just like they're being called a Viking or or a crusader or something. (laughs) It just has no connection to their actual lives, no connection to what's actually going on. And anyone throwing it out is just showing that they are acting in bad faith and they have no intentions of addressing anything you're going to say moving forward. You know, it's interesting because you're talking about philosophies of governance. And, you know, when you talk about socialism being an economic model and, you know, Sir Winston Churchill referred to socialism as a creed of ignorance, a philosophy of failure. You know, I don't understand why we have seen, you know, and and I was back in Congress uh, 11, 12 years ago when this started coming along. As a matter of fact, after Barack Obama was elected, I think it was Time Magazine had an article and the cover of that Time Magazine back in January 2000, what was that, 12? No, that would have been 2009. It said, we're all socialists now. And, And it was like nobody wanted to to say, what does that really mean or challenge it? Or when he said, we are, you know, several days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. How can we get back to a fundamental discussion of what it means to live in a constitutional republic, constitutional conservatism, classical liberalism, as opposed to socialism, Marxism, communism, statism? How can we have that open discussion if, you know, we we live in this sense, in this era of censorship and suppressing the free exchange and marketplace of ideas? Well, I think it's really difficult because unfortunately, in many ways, this idea of discussion at any price is kind of what led us here. One of the reasons that I think communism and many of these other ideologies were able to take over kind of the Western mind was that the idea that all of these things were valid from the beginning and all of these things were open. But I think it's very clear that they not. The, the left was never really interested in free speech. They were never really interested in a debate over ideas. And you can tell that because as soon as they subverted the institutions that they wanted, they're slamming the door behind them, right? They're not going to leave that ladder down for you to climb up after they've done what they wanted with it. Their entire argument over speech was simply one of convenience, one that allowed them to subvert things inside the United States until they were in control. And then they immediately kind of just disassemble the whole thing behind it. The point of a discussion like this, the point of having some kind of consensus is first you have to have a shared moral vision. Mm-hmm. The only way that this works for people to have discussions about these ideas is if they already have the same shared understanding of what is good, what is what America wants to be, what American identity is and where it wants to go. And if they don't have that, if you don't have that shared, you know, axiomatic understanding of America as a people and as a nation, and as a moral vision, then discussions afterwards don't have any ground on which to stand. And we have to affirm that before we can really have any kind of ability to discuss what is then good for the country.
You know, that's a great point because, you know, Ronald Reagan was a Republican and Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House and he was a Democrat. And look what they were able to accomplish because they understood that moral foundation of America and they wanted what was best for America. Just the same as Bill Clinton when he lost his uh, first midterm election cycle and you had the Republicans come in to contract with America. I mean, he worked with the Senate Majority Leader at the time, Dr. Bill Frist, and also Newt Gingrich. And, you know, he balanced the budget and he created a surplus and all of these things. So has the philosophical chasm just become too wide in the United States of America right now? I think we're at that point. I mean, when, you have, when you're having a debate over whether men are men and women are women, it's pretty clear that the chasm <laughs> has become rather great, almost insurmountable. I mean, there, this is a, a very real problem. We're, we, these things can't both be true, right? We're not yeah. at a point where you can negotiate this. Uh, either gender-affirming care is a valid term, or this is actually the mutilation of children. There is no middle ground. There's no compromise to be reached between these two moral visions. Either the progressive moral vision of kind of children as rearrangeable meat Legos that can be chopped up and reassigned at any moment, given the political fashion of the day, is true, or people are designed from the beginning by God with a particular identity, and they have to learn how to live inside that identity. This is both true from a you know, theistic understanding of the world and just a basic scientific understanding of the world. And only one of those things can be true. They cannot exist simultaneously. And so that's why I say I understand the desire for discussion in the marketplace of ideas and these things. But there are some things that are simply beyond debate. And if you are willing to move on those things, then there will be no fruitful debates going before it because there's no reality, no shared understanding on which to move forward. Yeah, it's pretty interesting when I watched that uh, Meet the Press segment with Vivek Ramaswamy and Chuck Todd. And Chuck Todd of NBC said that there's a, a spectrum uh, along gender. And I'm trying to think, okay, what's the spectrum? I mean, what part of the spectrum am I at right now as a 62-year-old black male uh, man? So uh, that leads me to this incredible article that you wrote, uh, and, and video, rather. It says, drug testing becomes absurd if trans athletes compete against women. And, and again, that's so simple. That's so profound. Because when you look at, at sports, and you brought up the uh, incident of the young woman, I think she was a, a long jumper or a high jumper, mm -hmm. who, you know, tested positive for marijuana, which is not a performance-enhancing drug, but she was stripped. She, she lost her, her uh, competitive status in, in that uh, competition she was in. So talk to us about that uh, very incredible video and the simple points that you brought up, which to me are just obvious. Yeah, this young athlete, like you said, I, I'm I'm pretty I'm I'm not a, a fan of pot. I don't I don't like uh, me either. Marijuana. Never smoked, I, never I, drank, none of that stuff. Yeah, I don't, it, yeah. It's just something that seems to take people's ambition away, and I'm not a fan of it. But you know what? It like you said, it's not an a performance enhancing drug, unless and yet she lost a title because she tested positive for it. But increasingly, we're in a position where if a woman, quote unquote, has testicles. That's not that's not a disqualifying thing. They can still partic participate in a female uh, sport. And that's just absolutely insane. We've lost, like we said, we, we've lost that definition, just those basic building blocks of civilization. And things like that used to exist, like drug testing, suddenly become absurd because what does doping, what does performance enhancing even mean when you're literally allowing someone who is biologically stronger, faster, everything, 
compared to women, compete in women's sports. I mean, they have the ultimate performance enhancer, which is being male. And yeah. if you're going to ignore biological facts like that, then the entire uh, edifice of kind of competitive sports and gender segregation in the sports just means nothing. The, the idea that someone could have a performing enhancing advantage just means nothing anymore. And there's no point in going through testing athletes for this kind of thing if you're going to allow this. Again, if we just don't have these basic civilizational definitions, then everything breaks down and all of these institutions no longer have any meaning. You're absolutely right. And see, I remember as a young kid uh, back when there was the Iron Curtain, and of course you watched the East German athletes and the Soviet uh, athletes, especially the females, competing against uh, the Western athletes. You could tell there was a clear disadvantage there. And so why would we allow biological male, as we saw with this William Thomas at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm not going to call him by this made-up name. I mean, he is a, a male swimming in a pool. He goes from 463rd ranking uh, among men to all of a sudden being number one against women. Well, yeah, what, what, do you, what would you not expect? And to see Riley Gaines, a biological female swimmer, being attacked by biological males who are trying to masquerade and say that they're better females than she is a female, it's absurd. And so that leads us to this other video that you did where it's called Kick the Dog Until It Bites. You know, five years ago, I don't remember this being an issue. So how is it that all of a sudden this whole thing about gender dysphoria and everything, it becomes this huge national issue. We want to mutilate the bodies of our children. We want to give them uh, puberty blockers, hormonal therapies, all of this. Uh, in the state of Washington, if you don't, quote unquote, affirm the gender choice of your child, you could lose your child. What is it about this? And, and I thoroughly agree with your kick the dog until it bites video. Yeah, it's very clear that the left is looking for their trans George Floyd moment. They're looking for a reason to allow their political supporters to uh, once again kind of unleash violence as they did uh, in, in the protests of 2020. And they are also looking for an excuse to clamp down on their political enemies like they did in after January 6th. And so they, what they're doing is just becoming more and more aggressive with their transgenderist propaganda. Specifically at this point, they're celebrating when violence is done in the name of transgenderism. We saw this happen with Riley Gaines where she was attacked by mm -hmm. a mob uh, by, for just standing up for kind of her basic ability to compete as a female. We saw this after the shooting in Tennessee mm -hmm. where the basically everyone from Joe Biden to Madonna was defending or even celebrating uh, the trans community after Christian children were murdered. There was a second shooter who was caught before they got to it, but they were planning to shoot up churches as well, and they were transgenderists. It's very clear that there's a danger here from the rhetoric that has been escalated by the left where they describe you know, uh, the situation transgenderists are in as some kind of existential threat, some kind of genocidal threat. They're obviously pushing these people towards violence, people who are already by definition mentally unstable. And then they're just waving the uh, uh, kind of the results in the face of people. And what are they hoping for? Well, they're hoping that someone will snap, that somebody 
will do some kind of violence and retaliation after seeing everything being paraded in front of him, watching all this violence happen to average ordinary people without any kind of real legal consequences. And once that happens, all of a sudden, that will be the uh, impetus, right? This will be the Casas Bell that will allow them to go ahead and crack down on their political opponents because after abusing people over and over again, once someone finally strikes back, they'll say, oh, look, this person's dangerous, this person's violent, and now we need to use the security state to, to just uh, crack down on all of our enemies. You know, the last video that I wanted to bring up that you did is called The Aristocracy of Victimhood. And following on that same line and understanding the overall theme, you know, socialism and communism, Marxism, it always needs a victim. Uh, it always needs to have that class of individuals that, you know, they can rile up to, to rise up, up against whatever structure there is. Of course, it was supposed to be socioeconomic, but after George Floyd, it's become racial. And now it seems that we're looking toward this new transgenderist uh, approach as well. So how do we combat against this incessant move to create more victims out there and to pit them uh, against everyone else? Because in the transgender community, we're not even talking about 1% of the population of the United States of America. Yeah, it's really the less need to have this constant revolutionary fervor. The, the left is really a mystery cult of power. It's a collection of people who benefit from the destruction of kind of the uh, already existing natural social hierarchy inside the United States and the wider Western world. This is what Marx was looking for. This is what so many on the left have always been looking for. And so when they couldn't get it with certain things like class, they look for other things. And what they've settled on in America is identity. They've tried it racially, but now of course they're moving to sexuality and now they're looking for ever smaller uh, groups with which they can kind of disassemble what we have here in the United States. And so I think what's really important for, I think, the right to understand is that this has been an attempt to more or less hijack the civil rights revolution and use it against the United States as a way to disassemble kind of the culture uh, in the United States. And again, just kind of the, that hierarchy that already exists, things like families, things like churches, things that were in, uh, integral to the United States suddenly become uh, things that are attacking the transgender community that make it impossible for them to exist. They say this openly, that my existence is being attacked. And again, we see how dangerous that rhetoric is because it obviously puts these uh, people in a position where they feel like some kind of violence is justified. And that's a really terrible place to be. So I think the right needs to come become more resistant to this tactic. They need to understand that the left is going to call you these stupid names no matter what. And they really can't be profitable you have to make it to where these things don't affect you. You need to do what's right. You need to protect the things that are important. You have to stand up for them. And you have to just laugh in the face of people who are going to use these slurs, these epithets towards you that have no bearing on the discussion. You just have to step over them. And if you don't do that, if you keep trying to sit down and debate them over each one of these titles and each one of these little wedge issues, they're going to win this because you're going to be wasting your time on these minute things that are just have so much revolutionary energy, but at the end of the day, don't have any real rebuke of what America is all about. You know, we call that in the military a bypass criteria. 
Mm. You know, if you got a mission and you stop to, you know, worry about every two or three little guys that are shooting at you, that gets you away from your mission. So you have to have that established bypass criteria so that you can stay focused on the long-term mission. Okay, I just made you, Aaron, I just made you king for a day. What are one or two things, remedies, uh, golden nuggets, how do you see us being successful going forward? Because the clock is ticking for this constitutional republic. I think that conservatives have to shift their mindset from one of defending institutions to one of building institutions. The institutions in the United States, unfortunately, have been mostly rotted to the core. And so we're now in a place where we have to think about building something new, having a new vision, while keeping, of course, that uh, that conservation of the past, connecting it to what made America great, what made America what it is. So I love to see people like Corey DeAngelis who are working to decouple the education system and its funding mm -hmm. from the progressive machine. I think that's really important. I would encourage uh, uh, conservatives to keep building organizations that allow people to say stay employed even if they've been canceled or called out by cancel culture and lost their jobs a way to connect people to unwoke employment that will allow them to you know be able to stand up for what they believe in and not completely lose their ability to take care of their families and i think it's really important for conservatives to focus on the ability to build families we have to be able to make sure that young families can get a home can afford to have children because these are the people who are going to carry your traditions forward they're the ones who are going to care about America, who are going to make America what it is in the future, and will, it turns out, naturally become more conservative because they're tied to their religion, to their family, to the things that matter. So if I had powers, those were the things that I would have the conservative movement focus on. Restoration, consolidation, and fortification of our fundamental institutions. Oren McIntyre, where can people find you out there uh, on the social media world and also uh, tune into your podcast? Sure. Uh, yeah, you can go ahead and subscribe to the Oren McIntyre podcast on all of your favorite podcast platforms. I've got a YouTube channel. I'm also on Rumble and Odyssey if you prefer those alt tech sites. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter and Gab. And then all of my stuff is on Blaze TV. Well, thank you so very much, Oren. And you give me such uh, reassurance uh, being 62 years of age that we have a great generation of young constitutional conservatives that are going to stand up for our institutions and get us back on track. So thank you for being on the Steadfast and Law podcast, and we look forward to having you back again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. A special thanks to each of you for joining us for this episode of the Steadfast and Loyal podcast. Special thanks to Aaron McIntyre for being with us as well. And if you like this podcast, please click the like button and share it with others. Until next time, Steadfast and Loyal. Before they burn it down.